You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. TJ, right at the top of the show, uh, since the last episode, we have lost two legends, and what a bummer. Dude, like, my childhood is slipping away. Yeah. We've lost Eddie Money, who, by all accounts, like, all my friends on Facebook have like photos of Eddie and concert footage. And by all accounts, he was just like the nicest guy. Yeah. So uh, a sad one. rest in peace, Eddie. And then we lost Rico Kasich from the Cars, mm-hmm. which is an absolute bummer because like those two are just kind of made up a big part of the 80s. So yeah, we will be doing future episodes on that. But for now, our thoughts and prayers go out to their family. And we wanted to address one of our listeners, Elizabeth. We did get your email, and we will be doing an episode probably in November for the subject that you emailed us in about. So, yeah. yes. And then um, some exciting some exciting news for me. Uh, last night I went to a movie starring Weston Cage Coppola. If you don't figure out whose son that is. <laughs> just based on like one of my three obsessions uh i sort of met nicholas cage last night sort of <laughs> being the emphasis i'm i am such an idiot for someone that's so <laughs> obsessed with him i really would have hoped that you would have taken the opportunity when he's right there in front of you that the only thing that you've wanted for your birthday is for him to be there. And he's right there in front of you. And you can't even jumble out an invitation. Like, just run away. Just scream in his face and run away. She's Great not job, ex- She's not exaggerating. Yeah, she told me this story a minute ago. And, like, literally, literally screamed in his face I- and ran away. Okay, so I everybody else is out in the lobby because this is the premiere. So... You know, all the stars are out in the lobby, and the stars Chuck Liddell and uh, Weston, and there are a couple other stars that are in the, the movie. And so I walk into the theater, and I assume it's going to be empty because everybody's in the lobby. So I want to get a decent seat. And so when I walk in, there are just these two guys sitting in the aisle seat, like right in front. And I hit this guy's eyes, and I realize immediately it's Nicolas Cage. Jeez. And I just, I'm going to back up off the mic and do it. But I literally look at him and go, ah! (laughs) And then go, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. And then just tiptoe away from him. And scream in his face and run away, (laughs) basically. I did did scream in his face and run away. Yeah. So. uh, Good job. The meeting with Nicolas Cage did not go well. (laughs) But, but I. 95% 95% met him, and my friend Philip took a video of the back of Nicolas Cage's head and pans over to me so that you can see that we're in the same room. So, oh, geez. You can tell we're in the same room. And that was as close as I actually got to having a conversation with Nicolas Cage. So, that was awesome. Which, again, you want him to go to your birthday party so bad. I know. <clears throat> but it's Nicolas Cage. And that would have been your opportunity to t- ask him. I know. I know. I just got scared. I got so, so scared. 
and just screamed and ran away. So, or just throw a post-it note at him or something that invites him to your party. No, but Phil you already was... screamed in his face. You might as well throw paper at him too. <laughs> Phil was a true friend, though. Phil was a true friend. We were standing outside, and the movie lets out, and he chases Nicholas Cage down the street. Nice to try to get him to take a picture. That's with not going to get you tasered at all. No, but but he stepped <laughs> up. He stepped up and was like, "Mr. Cage," and he took took, took off running. And so uh, we didn't get a picture, but. You know, I watched a, an entire feature film with Nicolas Cage. So that was my cool story for the, the week. <laughs> nice. One last piece of business. I'm accidentally going to go see Mark Knopfler. Inconceivable. <laughs> yeah. My my friend messaged me on Saturday. was like, hey, do you want to go to Mark Knopfler? And I'm like, yeah. Why not? What? Yeah. And she's like, great. It's at Berkeley. So I guess now I'm going to have like a six hour car ride with one of my friends who's literally flying from like Colorado to go to this concert. Nice. It's so. a nice drive. It's pretty. Yeah. You just took it. Yeah. Take the coast. It's yeah. pretty. All right. Well, you know what else is pretty? 16 pages. It's prettier than 23 pages, isn't it? I guess. Okay. So to catch you guys up, if you haven't checked out the last two episodes, which I, I really is it, go do it. Just go check out the other two episodes. But to catch you up, uh, we just released Bohemian Rhapsody, which was on Night at the Opera. And that was 1976. So 1976 started with Queen and Freddie riding high. Bohemian Rhapsody was at number one on the UK singles chart. And Night at the Opera was sitting atop the album charts. The NME, which I didn't look it up, but I assume it's like a music group. NME? Yeah. National Music Enemy. Something. <laughs> well, they had awarded Queen the best bit British the best British stage band. Record Mirror had voted them best British group. Sound had given them best band, best album, and best single, awarding Bohemian Rhapsody. And Freddie secured an Ivor Novello Award. It was the perfect position for the band to be in as they left the UK on the 20th of January for their, their world tour. On January the 27th, the U.S. leg of the tour kicked off in Connecticut with audiences in America now familiar with Queen's material, and it was a huge success. The band members were now true rock stars, and they were treated as such by adoring fans wherever they went. Naturally, given their newfound status, Queen after-show parties began to grow in terms of scale and excess, and these would soon become legendary in the world of rock. During the 1976 tour, whenever the band rolled into the town the local dignitaries vips and celebrities would be invited backstage to meet and greet them and i hope i kept the story in because there's a great story about what happened at one of these parties the band had grown accustomed to freddie leaving them after a post-gig meal together whereupon unbeknownst to them he would start to explore the seedier streets that the big apple had to offer yeah he did <laughs> Shrouded in relative anonymity and shielded from the British press, Mercury would prowl the city in his darkened limousine and expose himself to the underground gay scene. And like, 76, that was like, that was a dirty time for New York, right? Like, crime was super high and mm -hmm. Times Square was not very safe. And To the best of my knowledge, yeah. I mean, it, Taxi Driver. It was Taxi Driver. <laughs> Never mind. 
Who are you talking to? Yeah, but like the thing is, Freddie was a star, and the British press would hound him relentlessly when he was in London because he was royalty. And Freddie was quite well behaved in London compared to how he was in New York or later in Munich. Those two cities were the capital of anonymous one-time-only sex. Freddie undoubtedly enjoyed those places. I I got the impression from him that his time in New York was always really wild, but the gay scene there uh, at the time was harder than anywhere. And that was a quote from Phil, and oh my God, I'm going to butcher his name. And that was a quote from Paul Gambaccini. It was this brief stay in New York City that Freddie's love affair with the city was sealed. So basically, it was this trip that sealed Freddie's love affair with New York City. And he actually bought an apartment in the heart of the city, a base from which to indulge himself in the gay bars and nightclubs of New York. So basically, he just bought a flat in New York so that he could party anonymously. That's basically what I was getting. When we went to America or Japan or Australia or wherever, Freddie was pretty outrageous, recalls John Reed. He would walk into a bar, point at a man, and say, you, and that was it. He could pretty much get away with anything, and later when he lived in New York, the hedonism really kicked in, and that's where I assume the illness took hold. And I don't know if we've actually talked about John Reed. I don't think so. John Reed was one of their managers, and he was also the manager for Elton John. Oh, okay. So he kind of helped shape who Queen was. I think that's one of the tangents I took out because I'm like, wow, Tracy's just going to get mad if I say this. Well, I'm not going to get <laughs> mad if it's relevant. If you go in and like dive into his whole life story, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> After the release of Queen's fourth album, A Night at the Opera, and the resulting tour ran from 1975 until April of 1976, and the band had a new manager who was John Reed and decided they should take some time to enjoy everything that being famous had to offer. For Brian, marrying his longtime girlfriend Chrissy Mullen on May the 29th, over a month after the band's last live date, and John Deacon was happily married to his wife Veronica, and they had a son, Robert. And while Roger Taylor was flush with his financial success, having written the B-side to Bohemian Rhapsody, and therefore sharing in the spoils of its success, had purchased a house in Fulham, and was enjoying the bachelor lifestyle. Uh, jumping back a little bit, Freddie was still living with Mary Austin, but carrying on an affair with music publisher David Mintz. So who is David Mintz? This is from this is from a website that seems like they would pull articles from Mary Austin's life to create a blog. So there's a timeline, and I don't know if a hundred percent of the facts here are accurate so I'm just going to put this out here because the fact is I tried to do a deep dive on David Menz but every article seemed to just treat him as a footnote and I hate that but apparently he was someone who was very important because as I did my research I realized that he said that he wrote Love of My Life for Mary Austin but there is some contention that it was actually written for David Menz. I see. Yeah, so it's a little bit... It's a little bit funny. I was just thinking that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we did just mention Elton John. That's true. (laughs) I planted the seed. According to Mary, Freddie proposed in December of 1974, 
and according to his boyfriend, David Menz, he met in January of 1975. Queen went on tour, and when he returned, they started seeing each other at some point that summer. And that's when we, we can assume that Freddie began to write the words for Love of My Life, ready for recording between August and November of 1975. And there are actually photos of David in the studio during the recording of Night at the Opera, which I have seen. So it's not entirely fabricated. So he's still with Mary at this point, and at the launch party for A Night at the Opera, Freddie invited David back to his house, where David realized that Freddie's friend, Mary, was actually his girlfriend. Mary had no clue that David was her boyfriend's lover. So by this, we know that he still hadn't come out by late November of 1975. And I actually tried to dig deeper into Freddie's relationship with David, but unfortunately I couldn't find a whole lot, which it, it really sucks. Uh, David did write a book called This Was the Real Life, but it's told entirely from David's perspective. And Freddie never openly talked about him, but photos and letters from that time still exist. And there's actually a, um, a YouTube clip that I watched, and it's, it, it's too long. It's about 20 minutes, and it's just text and queen music. And it almost seems like speculation from the person that created the video. But there are telegrams, there's photos, there's letters from Freddie to David and vice versa. So it did happen. Fair enough. So clearly they weren't in any rush to get back on the road or into the studio. And in July, they finally began work on their follow-up tonight at the opera, recording material at three studios compared to its predecessors seven, The Manor, Wessex Studios, and Schwarm Studios, but... Unlike the sessions for Night at the Opera, the band weren't under any pressure scheduling-wise to quickly record an album and get back on the road to promote it. Apart from four concerts in September, the band wouldn't actually go on tour again until 1977. Three of those four concerts were parts of festivals, while the fourth date on September 18th, coincidentally the sixth anniversary of Jimi Hendrix's untimely death, was held at Hyde Park, organized by the band to be a free event to thank their British fans for being so loyal to them. Oh, that's cool. I think this was like a thing. This event was huge. Like, well, I imagine 50,000 people showed up. Yeah, if they were that popular and it's a free event. Like, uh, yeah, I'd get in a car and get there. Train, bus, whatever. Airplane. Uh, because these live dates came midway through recording sessions, it actually only made sense that some of the new songs be incorporated into the set which was Tie Your Mother Down, You Take My Breath Away, and those both were played, becoming some of the rare times that new material would be performed live before being officially released. Also, new to the set was an acoustic interlude that would later become Brian's song, 39, which is just... I said it in the last episode, 39 is just weird. It's weird. Yeah. It's still queen, but it's weird. Uh, performed by the band at the front of the stage with Freddie on lead vocals and Roger banging away on the bass drum and tambourine, which I always love tambourine. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's just a fun instrument. Like, violin, very serious instrument. Harp, very serious instrument. Tambourines and triangles will always make me giggle. Cowbells. Cowbells. Those are just fun instruments. <laughs> Recorders. Record <laughs> I've never seen an actual band. I have. Uh, integrate a recorder into their recording. I have. It was not good. Oh, that's, there's it nothing. Not good. No, it's, why is that even an instrument? So apart from a minor snafu that threatened to become a major headache, which is that the band's 
set overran by half an hour and because of strict time restrictions, the police were called to make sure that the band didn't go back out. And they reluctantly agreed not to, particularly because Freddie probably wouldn't have been pleased to be led away in cuffs wearing a giant spandex white suit. Probably not. (laughs) There are like a couple things I don't want to be arrested in. That's one of them. The other one's my T-Rex costume because it would probably tear the arms off. Yeah. If they tried to handcuff me from behind. (laughs) following the concert it was back to work on the new album and for the first time queen were unassisted by a producer evidently feeling that they had done all that they could do with roy thomas baker preferring to work on their own and as ever mike stone helped out as the engineer on the album their sessions finally concluded in november and the following month a day at the races was released to much acclaim Though some of the critics were quick to point out that the band was merely rehashing a formula that had worked so well on the previous album, sighing that the formula had become stale and didn't work on the new album. Unlike Night at the Opera, the material isn't as diverse here, and though it's easy to see the parallels between the two similarly themed albums, You Take My Breath Away is an updated version of Love of My Life, while The Millionaire's Waltz takes the studio trickery and adventurousness of Bohemian Rhapsody, Though critics claim Somebody to Love was a new Bohemian Rhapsody. I love that song so much. Somebody to Love? Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a good song. It is one of my top ten Please Don't Sing It at Karaoke songs. Yeah, but if someone does and they actually pull it off... Oh, yeah. Props to them. I'll buy I've you a seen, drink. I've seen that happen, and I'm like, holy crap, I didn't think you could do that. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. It's the last note. It's like in Dream On. Like if you're doing yeah. Dream On and karaoke and you can't hit that note, don't sing it. If you can't hit the, the note in At Last, don't sing it. I'm sure you like it, but why don't you just walk outside and listen to it on your Spotify? John Deacon gets another lovely pop song in the form of You and I, which could be as, as seen as a superior rewrite of You're My Best Friend. I don't know how, but because My Best Friend is such a good song. While Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, which I love, was written in the same vein as Freddie's previous vaudevillian musical-inspired material like Seaside Rendezvous or Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon and Bring Back That Leroy Brown. However, that's where the similarities end. The material on the day at the races is heavier and more deliberate, preferring performance and atmosphere over perfection. Which I think that that is a... A really good criticism is that they chose to create a a feeling as opposed to having everything perfect. Okay. It's it's one of my favorite albums. Yeah. Didn't show up on your Facebook list. Not yet. I'm not done with my Facebook list. <laughs> like I remember it every other day for one thing. I was gonna say <laughs> it feels so bad. Your ten day challenge has been lasted has lasted like two weeks and you're still not done. I know. Because I keep forgetting. (laughs) That's why I don't do them. I know you try to nominate me. I'm like, yeah, no. No? I don't do this stuff. (laughs) No. At least you you told me that you didn't do it. You're like, yeah, I like this idea, but no, I don't do this stuff. No, people try to nominate me for those things. No, it's not happening. Don't bother. I'm not going to do it. Get out of here. Yeah, I'm totally fine with it. Because I was like, it takes 10 seconds. Mm, Might as well just make my friend happy. I did the 30-day challenge, which was really hard. Oh, God. It'd take you, like, 
a year? No, I actually did it within 30 <laughs> days, but I was also unemployed at the time. Oh, fair so enough. I had some I had some free time. And I think I I think I picked all my stuff out ahead of time. So it was uh, already there. See. So it's just now I'm just trying to think of it on the fly. It's like, oh my God. The other thing I expected was for it for every single one that you posted to be a queen album. Yeah, but it wasn't the 18-day challenge, and that's not counting the bootlegs. Wow, dude. I was making a joke. <laughs> and I would probably leave Flash Gordon off, but I do talk about Flash Gordon later on, so hold that Fair thought. Enough. The first single from the album, Somebody Love, reached number two in the UK and a respectable number 13 in the US. While subsequent singles didn't perform as well, Tie Your Mother Down peaked at number 31 in the UK. Tie Your Mother Down. Tie your mother down. I love that song. I like that I song, like, too. such a good song. Every, I'm going to say that after every time. I, 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 <laughs> I can't help it. I just, I like these songs. Yeah, well, I'm th- there's a reason why Queen is amazing. There's a reason why this album is amazing. Yes. Tie Your Mother Down peaked at number 31 in the UK and number 49 in the US. And Queen's first EP with Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy being the main track reached 17 <laughs> in the UK the EP wasn't released at all in the U.S. Instead, Long Away was released but failed to chart due to an absence of a performance video and Freddie's instantly recognizable lead vocals. Like its predecessor, the album sailed onto the U.K. charts at number one and reached five in the U.S. And in 1991, the album was actually re-released on CD in the U.S. with the two remixes of Tie Your Mother Down and Somebody to Love featuring only minor subtle differences to the original. At this time, Freddie was beginning to get a reputation as an outrageous international party animal, the legendary Lord of Excess, and a notable sex god. I want that written somewhere about me, that I was a notable sex god. Can you just write that on my Facebook page? Lindley, you're a notable sex god. Thank you. But there were rumors that he was using his newfound wealth to finance his growing use of cocaine and to indulge in his every fancy. But beneath the exterior was a deeply romantic man who constantly fell in love and was always looking for love, like the love. He has a lot, and those around him thought that he had found it with Mary Austin, and there was undoubtedly a love there, but for Freddie, it wasn't what he was looking for ultimately. And although he seemed to be in love with David Menz, and Menz seemed to be in love with him, Freddie was always battling with the feeling that he he was being pulled in other directions, and he was attracted to other men, all while still living with Mary. And the thing was that <laughs> there's going to be a quote in here, so I'm I'm going to give a trigger warning. I don't think it actually meant, I don't think he meant what he actually said <laughs> in this, so I should give a trigger warning. It was actually the success of Bohemian Rhapsody that finally shifted the dynamic of their relationship, and upon coming out to Mary, revealing his bisexuality, to her may have been kind of Mary's way of giving her blessings for him to just kind of swing wildly. To keep his cover intact, Mary actually agreed to publicly attend events with him and pose as his girlfriend. And this this deception was so successful that even Freddie's bandmates didn't appear to realize that he was gay. Mercury moved out of the flat that they shared into uh, the 12 Stanford Terrace in Kensington and bought Mary a place of her own nearby. Mary once said in an interview, I think he reached a stage where he thought that he was invincible, she said. He had convinced himself that he was having a good time, and maybe in part he was, but I think in part he wasn't. And 
then I think it was too late. The only person who could have made a difference was Freddie. But I think that he stopped being honest with himself. And most of his so-called friends were there for the free tickets, the free booze, the free drugs, the free meals, the gossip, and, of course, the expensive gifts. Because he would have these lavish parties where literally he would just throw out Tiffany boxes. That's not too shabby. No. Singing a follow-up to the single Bohemian Rhapsody, their company settled on You're My Best Friend. And that was written by John Deacon for his wife. And that reached number seven on the UK and on the US charts, number 16. And having that song hit the number 10 on the UK singles actually meant that John Deacon became the second member of Queen to write a top 10 single, which is crazy to think all of the, like, think about all the members of that band. And John Deacon, the quiet one, slowly creeps up and gets the second one nice yeah and since tracy likes to put in fun facts i'm gonna throw in one too that you might not know a day at the races and a night at the opera were both named after what trivia question i don't know they're both marx brothers movies oh yeah (laughs) it was september and the band were working hard on their new album a day at the races and that was released on december 1976 And the band had all attended a special horse race at Kempton Park. That sounds fancy. We're going to Kempton Park today. Uh, Most most horse tracks have fancy names. Hollywood Park. (laughs) Didn't it used to be called something else? I don't think so. I think it was always Hollywood Park. Oh, okay. The other one's Santa Anita. Oh, yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, we used to always go to Hollywood Park. I I used to love horse racing. And then they started to die. So I stopped going. Like 24 horses are dead. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not always the nicest sport for horsies. No, it's not. Not at all. So they went to Kempton Park to promote the album. And in a day at the race's stakes, a special race was sponsored by EMI, the record label. And they actually all backed the same horse without telling each other. And it won. Nice. <laughs> Five days before its release, advance orders for day at the races. This is advanced orders for a day at the races, was in excess of half a million, the highest order EMI had ever received for any album. Cool. Yeah. 77 had only been around for four days before Queen jetted off to America to rehearse for their forthcoming tour. They were on the road constantly through January, February, and most of March in the U.S. and Canada. Roger decided at the end of it all to record a solo single, which he paid for out of his own pocket. I Want to Testify was released in August, and in May of 1977, Queen flew out of Stockholm to begin an extensive European tour. Their concert at Earl's Court in London featured the famous Crown Lighting Rig. It was 54 feet wide, 26 feet tall, and weighed 5,000 pounds and cost the band 50,000. That's a number. That's, no, that's a, that's a, I don't know what that money is. (laughs) What is this money? (laughs) <laughs> i don't know i don't think that's a symbol for a euro okay so it cost the band fifty thousand something dollars <laughs> um it should be noted at this time that the punk scene was becoming more prevalent in the music landscape and these were acts like the sex pistols the damn and the clash and apparently there's a story which i took out that didn't seem relevant at the time, but I will say somehow Queen and Freddie Mercury caused Sex Pistols to be popular, question mark. 
but I took it out, so sorry. In October 1977, the fan club was asked for the first time to take part in one of the van's videos. We Are the Champions was filmed at the New London Theater, and after initial filming was finished, the band remained on stage and played an impromptu gig to say thanks to the fans who had turned up and worked so hard. And I think this would happen again with the video for Radio Gaga, which is probably my second or first favorite song, which I've talked about before. Toss up. It's a toss-up between that and Love of My Life. I see. So it's either Roger or Freddie. Who knows? It depends. <laughs> it really depends on the day. Really depends on. I will say, though, that Radio Gaga is the only song that I would actually tattoo the lyrics onto my body. Right. So maybe that's first. I think that would be first. I don't know. Love of My Life is gorgeous, though. In October of 77, also saw the band presented with a Britannia Award for the top British single for Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I don't know. The ones I would have assumed have already passed. Yeah. it's Okay, I see. 77 for, yeah. for Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah. Queen released News of the World on October 28th, 1977. And the cover was a drawing Roger had discovered by science fiction artist... Kelly Frias, forgive me if I'm saying that name wrong, Roger asked him if he would mind adapting his illustration for the album cover, and Kelly readily agreed. The giant robot from the album cover is also known as Frank and is used as a special effect during the songs We Will Rock You and Killer Queen for the 2017 and 2018 Queen and Adam Lambert tour, which was in celebration of the album's 40th anniversary. I actually saw it. It was a really cool effect. Because they have, like, a brick wall built up behind the stage. And Frank breaks all the bricks out. And then the band comes out. And so it's really cool. And then, again, Adam Lambert comes out, like, riding Frank's head for one of the songs. Well, all right, then. It's really cool. Like I said, though, you can find his that, that entire uh, concert on YouTube. And there are plenty of views. And uh, I wanted to see it again. Why didn't you? Because tickets were like $300. Oh, that. Yeah, because they were reasonable when they were at the Hollywood Bowl. They were only like 80 bucks each from where we were sitting. But you go to the forum and to sit in the nosebleed section was like 250 If you want to get an actual view of the band, it was around 1000 Fun fact, there is a movie called Robot and Frank. That I found while I was trying to find Frank the Robot. <laughs> hmm. Just a little fun fact for you. <laughs> I'm finding so many great sidebar things that just seem excellent. Spooky uh, Tooth. During this, <laughs> these episodes. Between <laughs> Spooky Tooth and now my probably new favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, in November, they were off to the U.S. again and for rehearsing for their forthcoming tour. For the first time, their finances enabled them to charter a private plane for the tour. And it should be noted that prior to, I haven't talked about a lot about their finances because it wasn't like on a TLC level, but they were being denied, what do you call it, advances and things like that to oh, okay. pay for stuff. And they were in financial dire straits, so they were trying to collect money any way they can. Didn't they have that, like, earlier on, too? Yeah. Yeah. But they separated from their management, and now they're in a much better financial place. Okay. 
and uh, I was watching a, a documentary, and Brian May was talking about how they would write songs, and someone would have it in their head, and they would lay it down, and then someone would just claim it. <laughs> so I think it was the Seven Seas of Rye that they that Freddie was like, I wrote that, and so they would put his name down as the writer. And they didn't realize in the end that that meant that they were basically giving him the rights to all the revenue from that song, from right. the single stuff. And they, they were just clueless about it. And they didn't realize that until later on down the road. And that's why in the film you see them talk about, like, from now on it's going to be Queen. It's not going to be Roger. It's not going to be Freddie. It's not going to be John. It's not going to be Brian. It's going to be Queen. And we all share the money. There you go. Yeah, so... They took the private plane, and it made life on the road much more comfortable, I can only imagine. Not, not for me. I, I think. I want a bus. I can't. Me too. I want a bus. I don't want to be on a plane. It takes too much to get me on a plane. And then just going from place to place to place to, pl- like, via pl- Nightmare. No, I have <laughs> no problem getting off and on planes, but I just want a bus so I can be a vagabond. <laughs> Fair enough. I just I I don't I don't mind road trips. That's why I'm like five hours on the road. I'm fine with that to go see Mark Knopfler. Like honestly, for me, and unless you're a huge Marina Lambert fan, you probably don't know this song. But I know this song, and I'm obsessed with this song. It's called Highway Vagabond. Fair enough. I don't have a road song. I love it. So their tour began on the 11th of November. Their second U.S. tour that year. So they had toured before, left, and then came back. So if you can't guess, we Americans loved Queen. Yep. And also, glam rock is a thing. Big thing at that point. And arena rock mm-hmm. was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Man, I miss arena bands. I really do. I like those big oh, arena bands. don't worry. Bands. They're still around. So they, they came back to America on tour, and then they left here just in time to spend Christmas with their families. That Christmas... We Will Rock You was actually knocked off the French number one slot after 12 weeks by their own song, (laughs) We Are the Champions. Nice. I thought those were, okay, you would probably be able to answer this. Aren't those combined? No, they're not. They actually combine them on the radio and they combine them at sports events, but they're kind of inextricably linked with each other. Yeah, because... Like, I don't know who I was listening to that said that that's the way that they're supposed to be. Yeah, in theory, that's the way they're supposed to be, but it wasn't how they were. They were released as their own singles. Right. And so, like, they get somebody was getting all cranky pants because they've heard them where they split them apart and they don't play the, quote, whole song. We Are the Champions is 2 minutes and 56 seconds. Right. And Queen's We Will Rock You is 2 minutes. So I think what they do is they merge them together because when it comes to those two songs, that being over the five-minute mark, because they're two different songs, still make it into a radio edit. Uh, Yeah, I just, I would be curious to know where that rumor came from that they're supposed to be one song. I don't know if it's a rumor because they do put them together on radio edits. And I, as long as I can remember, they put them together. Well, to a point where somebody would actually, you know, where people actually believe that they're meant to be one song. 
Yeah. They're like a combined song. Yeah, they're two separate songs. They just they've linked them together and now it's just it's in that's in our zeitgeist that those are one song. Okay. But even if you put like your playlist together, you know, in, in Apple Music or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever, SoundCloud, it's two separate songs. It doesn't exist as a combo song. It's so weird. It is weird. So, released from his commitment to Mary Austin and away from David Menz, who remained in the UK, Freddie was free to, to indulge himself whenever and with whatever he fancied outside of the British press. And he had every intention of living life to the fullest in the U.S., which started the five years of, <laughs> is it pr promiscuity? Yeah. Promiscuity? <laughs> okay. For Freddie. And he pursued the gay life that he had yearned for for so long. But he actually kept it a secret from everyone. And so this starts five years of just him in go mode. Go. Despite being in a relationship with men, he embraces freedom. This is a quote from Freddie. So, so don't be mad at us. So don't be mad at me. <laughs> so he had embraced his freedom. And so here's the quote. My sex drive is enormous, he revealed. I sleep with men, women, cats, you name it. I'll go to bed with anything. My bed is so huge, it can comfortably sleep six. I prefer my sex without any involvement. And that was his lifestyle philosophy that enabled him to select whoever he uh, wanted to take to bed. And he would boast that it would be hundreds. All right, do your thing, but leave the poor cats alone. <laughs> he what just, did they do to you? Oh, he loved cats. I don't Wait, think he loved... Clearly. I don't think he... Loved cats, but I think he <laughs> loved cats. Like, I love cats. I don't think he, you know. So apparently, Freddie wasn't fussy when it came to partners. And uh, people would actually say that he would, in quotes, go extremely down market. What does that mean? I think it means you're Freddie Mercury and you're sleeping with whoever. Bums. Yeah. Basically, it didn't matter. Like, he had an insatiable drive, apparently. His libido was um, thriving. All right, fair enough. But apparently he wasn't too fussy, so he would just, like, literally just take it from anywhere. Now, of course, this is not me saying this. This is from the book, Somebody to Love, and the 8,000 articles I used as a reference for this this episode. So please understand that this is not me saying this stuff this was documented somewhere else by other people so please don't at me or sue me so freddie wasn't the only one who got to enjoy himself so it seems did the rest of queen their tour to the u.s was another benchmark for excess and debauchery and so basically they were partying with thin lizzie who is a irish rockers if you don't know who that is and they had just secured a breakout hit with the boys are back in town so there you go. And they were an exception. Nice. Yeah. Good song. Great song. They were These songs make me think of um, A Knight's Tale. <laughs> Dude, I've never seen that. Because we will. What? <sighs> oh, my God. I own it. We'll watch it. Okay. But you still have to watch Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I get it. But I own it. We'll watch it. It's one of my favorites. It's Heath Ledger, first of all. Come on. So Queen was really kind of partying hard. At this time, and apparently their their parties were like the stuff of legends. Like, they would have 
naked girls, and then they'd have fire eaters, you know, freaks of all kinds, naked chicks, didn't matter. And then they'd have little people wandering around with literal plates of cocaine strapped to their heads. Jeez. And then they'd invite the clergy because he said, darling, we're going to have to confess. (laughs) (laughs) February of 1977, they actually knew that they had made it and they had well and truly arrived when they sold out Madison Square Garden. Now, this is kind of important because, again, we talked about at this point there wasn't an Internet. Like, you legitimately had to get up and go to the venue and buy the ticket. Right. And there wasn't really a second marketplace like we have with StubHub now. Well, they did have box offices in different places. Like, I remember when I was really little, they used to have box offices, like, in the department stores. Yeah. Where you could buy tickets like that. But you still had to, like, make an effort to go. Yeah, you still had to go somewhere. You had to go somewhere and pick it up. Yeah, you couldn't just, like order it online and that's 20 your phone yeah that's twenty thousand fans and it sold out within minutes minutes twenty thousand tickets in 1977 jeez minutes jeez yet however much of a unit the band appeared to be on stage once off stage they were spending more and more time doing their own thing Brian was spending time with his wife while John and his wife had their, like, I guess Brian had brought his wife with him, and then John had his wife and son accompany him on his tour, and Roger would join Phil Lennon, and that's then Lizzie's guitarist, and Scott Gorham in whatever club was in whatever town that they were in. And Freddie would go off and find himself alone, and loneliness was not something he could deal with really well. And as a result of being, he would actually just try to seek out the gay bars in whatever city he was in, and he would pick up men for sex, knowing that it was only going to be like a one-time thing. And he kind of liked the idea that he could just leave them the next morning. So Fair it's, it's kind of sad, though, is to think that here's a man who had it all. He's got the fame. He's got the fortune. He's got the number ones. He can literally go anywhere and just point to someone. He can have these lavish parties, but he still feels, at his core, incredibly lonely. And there's something so sad about that. Yeah. By 1977, there was no question about him not being gay, but it certainly wasn't an issue, said Brian Southall, EMI's head of promotions, who had joined the band in the U.S. But there was much more of an attitude of the we-do-what-we-want in Freddie more than the other members. The subject of sexuality never came up because it wasn't even mentioned, recalls Brian May. None of us had any idea that he might be different than us. Is that saying it the right way? That's a quote from Brian, so that. I mean, we shared a lot of flats and stuff, and Freddie would disappear into other rooms with girls, and screams would emerge. So, you know, we assumed that everything was very much the same way as we knew it. It was only very much later that we realized that anything else was going on with Freddie. I mean, much, much, much later. We were on tour in the States, and suddenly he got boys following him in the hotel rooms, and we're thinking, hmm. And that's about the extent of it. I've always had plenty of friends, and I've always had plenty of gay friends, and I didn't realize that Freddie was one of them until much later. Well, yeah. 
So on this tour, Freddie encircled himself with assistants. Among them was Peter Brown, his personal assistant, as well as a 250-pound bodyguard and a personal monsieur. But he also had a, a show dancer that Mercury had picked up and who was now put on the payroll as his hairdresser. Also accompanying Freddie was another personal assistant who had recently arrived on the scene, Paul Printer. Um, John Reed also said that he was one of his first boyfriends. Literally when I was about 17, remembers John Reed, who was the manager of Queen at the time. I met him in Glasgow, and I was still at home, and he was from Belfast, and his father was a bookie, and he was at university. So when I came down to London, I kind of kept in touch with him, and I was in California when out of the blue, I get a call from Paul's father. It was the height of the troubles in Belfast, and he said that we didn't know each other, but I know you know my son. Is there any way that you can help him get out of Belfast? Because I know things are so bad, plus it was all a bit messy. So I spoke to Paul, and I told him to go to London, as I had a flat there. And when I got back there, I gave him a job as a runner. And then, of course, you know, he got to know Freddie, and that's how it all just got off. Uh, he managed to gain confidence with Freddie for stories of his apparent tragic life in Ireland and how robberies had left him penniless. Naturally, Freddie felt sorry for him and took him under his wing and he could provide him with money and eventually employ him. But Freddie was complicit in the relationship and he was no fool and he wasn't some schmuck to be taken advantage of. This was the beginning of a 10-year relationship that would ultimately end in betrayal. Paul was not my favorite person, recalls Peter Stranger, who was Freddie's close friend, that everything that Freddie desired or wanted in terms of looking after him, and he could be a quite a divisive person. And that's because he had Freddie's ear. He became a nightmare, and he became a divider between Freddie and the band, said John Reed. But for now, he was a valued member of Freddie's entourage. And I think we'll get more into him and the relationship because he actually does play a big part in the film Bohemian Rhapsody, so you'll need that for context. So in 1978, Queen decided that they should set up their own management structure. They parted company with John Reed more amicably than their split with Trident. And this severance agreement actually signed on the back of Freddie's Rolls Royce during a break in filming the We Will Rock You in the Back Garden of Rogers House in Surrey. A short, by Queen's standards, tour of Europe in April of 1978 and again in Stockholm in July, the band started to work on their new album. They recorded it, oh gosh, in Montreux and France. And it was the first time that they had ever recorded outside of Great Britain. And I guess that's like a really big thing that wasn't taken lightly to move the recordings from Great Britain to some other area. Um, you'll like this. <laughs> And uh, not to name drop, but I went to a symposium. It's a fancy that, word. That's not a name. I went to a symposium with with Dr. Brian May, who talked about um, 3D photography. And it was really interesting. <laughs> of, course oh, okay. I'm, of course, I'm freaking out because it's Brian May teaching me photography, uh, 3D photography, and, and mm -hmm. how he would create his own 3D photographs mm -hmm. in a sense. And that's the book that's sitting back here. Yeah. Yeah. The one that you won't open. I'm scared to, <laughs> but he was, he was talking about the recording of this music video for bicycle race because the publicity for the forthcoming single, the band hired 
Wembley Stadium. So I guess that's how they refer to it. They hired Wembley Stadium. So we, we would say booked Wembley Stadium. Right. And 50 naked girls had their own bicycle race. The original cover of the single featured the rear view of those naked girls, but due to public outcry in some countries, panties had to be drawn on. Uh, and and when we were talking, when when he was talking about the music video in the symposium, they were mad because the boys didn't get to be present for that music videos to be recorded. They weren't <laughs> they weren't able to be there. <laughs> And so that was that. But there is a music video, and I I do believe that they're 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 nude. I think they're they're naked. Uh, ba, ba, ba. I do like that song too. It's a good yeah. It's I can't I gotta stop saying that where you're like I like that song. I'm like that's a good song. It's gonna get old. <laughs> you like all the songs. I like all the songs except for innuendo and thirty nine. It's not that I don't like 39. It's just weird. Fair enough. <sighs> November 10th saw the release of Jazz, the band's seventh album, and the sleeve was packed to contain a fold-out poster of the Naked Bicycle Race. So Americans banned it outright, but they did replace it with a form that you could send in so that you could get it sent from England. So if you really wanted the poster of the Naked Girls, you could get it. The launch party for Jazz. Can you guess where the launch party was held? I have no idea. I'm looking for the bicycle race photo. Come on. Jazz. New Orleans. Oh, huh, I got it. And that has gone down in history. I see the drawn-on panties. <laughs> All right. So what of the music? Titled Jazz, it should be hardly a surprise that the album features little if any, on it at all. Only the Dreamer's Ball comes close to it, sounding more like a boozy New Orleans blue shuffle. Elsewhere, the bands stuck firmly into their rock roots with Fat Bottom Girls, If You Can't Beat Them, Let Me Entertain You, Dead on Time, and Don't Stop Me Now, which we talked about Don't Stop Me Now because that's a, an awesome song that Edgar Wright used to perfection in Shaun of the Dead. Yes. And the ballads, Jealousy, In Only Seven Days, and Leaving Home Ain't Easy. Hey guys, so I wanted to let you know that we had to take a little bit of a break. Tracy actually had a small emergency. Everything is fine, but I'm going to carry on this episode on my own for just a little bit. And then I think a little later on, maybe my husband Will will join me so I don't feel like I am talking to no one and going mildly crazy. I actually don't understand how some podcasters can just do it by themselves, but good on you. I'm looking at you, Dan Cummins. So jumping back in with jazz, critics were quick to lambaste the album for being overcooked and pretentious. Though it should be mentioned that every album since Queen 2 received the same criticism, and I think that we can all pretty much agree that Queen's earliest stuff is the stuff of legend. It's amazing. One review by the dim-witted David Marsh, and that's not my word, so forgive me, David Marsh, even labeled Queen as rock's first fascist band. However, with 13 tracks spread across 45 minutes, it was inevitable that the band would start to run out of ideas. While there were some good to excellent songs on the albums, there's actually more filler than any previous Queen album. As a result, the band would take some time off from studio work, 
and focus exclusively on live performances. And honestly, if you ever get the chance to see Queen live, do it. By the time they entered the studio again in June 1979, Roy Tom Baker was gone for good again. And Queen's recording techniques would be challenged and maintained by new blood. Jazz was released in 78 and reached number two in the UK and number six in the US with a cover inspired by concentric circles spotted by Roger while visiting the Berlin Wall in spring of 1978. The first single, Fat Bottom Girls, Bicycle Race, the, the band's first double A-sided single since Killer Queen, Flick of the Wrist in 74, and the second single from the album, Don't Stop Me Now, was more successful, reaching number nine in the UK, as opposed to the first single, number 11's placement. While the U.S. charts were more disappointing, Fat Bottom Girls' Bicycle Race reached 24, while Don't Stop Me Now barely scraped the top 100, reaching number 86. Which is a bummer, because Don't Stop Me Now is, I feel like, one of Queen's iconic songs. The third single, Jealousy, didn't chart at all. So the band actually hosted a party themselves in order to invite both EMI, their record company, and Elektra, their U.S. representatives. And it was the first time both companies' executives had met, and they both ensured all of their directors attended, each trying to outnumber the other. The party was a completely over-the-top affair, featuring mud wrestlers, little people, topless waitress, and a host of other weird and wonderful characters. I wouldn't expect anything less. The North American tour finished late in December, and they flew back to the UK for Christmas, but they didn't get too much time to rest, as by January of 1979, they were off to Europe yet again. The tour kicked off in Hamburg, and by March, they were ensconced in Mountain Studios in Montreux working on their live album. The band enjoyed the peace of Montreux and liked the studio, so they decided to buy it. The studio. They actually bought the studio. <laughs> when Freddie was asked by resident engineer David Richards why they had bought it and what they intended on doing with it, Freddie quipped, Dump it in the lake, dear. I can only hear it in Freddie's voice. The band flew out to Japan for yet more touring in April of 1979, and in June, they approached the All England Lawn Tennis Club and asked them if they could use the center court at Wimbledon, after the tournament, of course, for a concert. They were actually refused permission by Wimbledon, which kind of sucks. <laughs> but the band's first live album and their only double album to date, Live Killers, was released in 79. It was an album released by very popular demand, and Queen were approached to write the musical score for a science fiction film, Flash Gordon. When the idea was first discussed with the producer Dino De Laurentiis, he simply said, But who are the Queens? The band had agreed to work on the score and started work during June in Munich. The end of 1979 found Queen embarking on the crazy tour. For the rock gods of the 1970s, the transition into a new decade proved to be a difficult gear shift. By the end of 1980, Led Zeppelin had been sunk by the death of their drummer, John Bonham. Of course, we'll be doing an episode on him. Unraveling alongside them were The Who, and while the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd continued to play packed stadiums, the crowds increasingly called out for their old songs. In this age of stumbling giants, Queen hit the 80s like a train. Already, the band had kissed off the 70s with their biggest U.S. hit to date in the form of a rockabilly number called Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Dreamt up by Mercury in a Munich bathtub and captured by incoming producer Reinhold Mack at the city's Musicland Studios, the single seemed to be a launch pad into an imperious decade. 
even if Brian May told Guitar World that the lineup operated less through design as dumb luck. Everyone thought we had like this huge monster plan, the Queen Machine, but it's all an illusion. May would recall putting in long shifts at the Musicland console at 3 o'clock trying to make something work. But the lineup played hard too, albeit separately, with Mercury holding court at the old Miss Henderson Gay Club while the other members retreated to the Sugar Shack, a local disco that would provide hugely influential on their evolving sound. We would take tracks down there after hours and play them over their system and see how it worked, reflected May. Anything with a bit of a groove sounded good. We became obsessed with leaving space in our music and making songs that would sound great in the Sugar Shack. The venue's vibe would spill onto the guitarist's own Dragon Attack, a funky jam reportedly fueled by vodka and tonics. But more significantly... It was the thumbprint on Queen's biggest hit of the decade, Another One Bites the Dust. While tipping a hat to the Munich club scene, John Deacon's three-note bass line was also the product of his own Motown-fixated youth and a chance overhearing of an early version of U.S. icon funk's Sheik's 1979 Risqué while hanging out with that band's assistant, Bernard Edwards, in New York. It wasn't cool, the American later told NME. It's the press that started saying that we had ripped them off. And while the rest of the band were bemused, May later recalling that we had no idea what Deaky was doing and that Taylor's initial response was unprintable, they soon fell into the groove. Taylor's drums were deliciously dry and clipped. May's funky rift scratched between the warm bass line. And Freddie was so into what we were doing, recalled the guitarist, that he sang until his throat bled. I don't deny that. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I feel like that could have possibly happened. It was a rare moment of synergy in an often bad-tempered session. On the brink of his debut solo album, Fun in Space, Taylor seemed particularly restless, pitching up to sessions with an Oberheim OBX. Past Queen albums had pointedly claimed no synthesizers and pushing to sing the lead on Rocket, the song ultimately saw the drummer and Freddie sharing the duties. Keeping the focus, Mac told Isotope, it was difficult at the best of times with a mixture of these personalities. There were huge rows in the studio, noted Taylor, usually over how long Brian was taking or whether he was having an omelet. We drove each other nuts. We all walked out at various times, May recalled. You get hard times as in any relationship. We definitely did, usually in the studio, never on tour. On tour, you always have to have a clear and common aim. But in the studio, you're all pulling in different directions, and it can be very frustrating. You only get 25% of your own way at the best of times. So, yes, we did have hard times. Feeling that you're not being represented, that you're not being heard, because that's one of the things about being a musician. You want to be heard. You want your ideas out there. You want to be able to explore what's coming to you in the way of your inspiration. It was a difficult compromise to find, but always worth finding once you find it. That is, I read that sentence like six different times, and I think I might have said it right that time, so forgive me if I didn't get it right. Mercury was a little bit more succinct on the dynamic. He just said, four cocks fighting. Lovely. <laughs> so you guys, uh, thank God my husband actually came home from work because now I have forced him into... <laughs> integrating into this episode because I was really tired of talking to myself for a while. So let's welcome Mr. Hickey. Hello, and I'm glad I came home from work because if I didn't, I'd still be at work. Yes. And you wouldn't be talking about <gasps> Under Pressure. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So Under Pressure is a song, of course, by Queen and David Bowie, which it's honestly like, that's my 
in the car rage song. You've been in the car when I've raged to the song. Oh, yes, I have many times. <laughs> and it was relig- originally released as a single in October of 1981, and it was later included on the Queen's 1982 album Hot Space. And the song reached number one on the UK's singles charts, becoming Queen's second number one hit in their home country after 1975's Bohemian Rhapsody, hmm. which that's that's hard to believe, isn't it? That that's their only other number one. Yeah, but they were number one in the United States, right? Not really. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, which it actually charted, the, the it was at the top of the charts for nine weeks, and it was Bowie's third after a 1975 reissue of Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes, and of course we're going to be doing an episode on David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. We we <clears throat> should have our podcast license taken away from us if I don't do an episode on David Bowie. You, you have to. Also, a podcast, a podcast license isn't like a thing. So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point is there will be an outcry if you do not. Yes. The song peaked at number 29 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 in January of 1982, and would rechart for one week at number 45 in the U.S. following Bowie's death in January 2016. It's crazy to think that it wasn't that high. It didn't chart as high in the U.S. Yeah, that is a surprise. You go through this and you think, no, that's got to be number one, and it just isn't. And this is the whole British invasion, too, so uh, it, just after that, right? No, it, this is probably about a decade after. Okay. Well, still, there was Actually, a big two, almost, over. Actually, almost two decades, because okay. we're now in the 80s. Oh, okay. We're, we're in wow. 82, so we're well past, like, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. The song has been described as a monster rock track that stood out on the Hot Space album, as well as an incredibly powerful and poignant pop song. This was included at number 31 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 80s. Hmm. I'm not going to I'm not going to argue with that. I'm going to argue with this position. Yeah, it needs to be on there. Yeah, and voted the second best collaboration of all time in a poll by Rolling Stone magazine. I wish I knew what number 1 was. I was just going to ask that. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Collaboration. It wasn't Beastie Ebony. Boys and Bismarcky. <laughs> Ebony and Ivory. Oh, uh, nuts. <laughs> was it Rockwell and Michael Jackson? I really hope so. <laughs> One aspect that the critics were quick to point out and occasionally praise was the obvious desire to focus more on the rhythmically, the rhythmically charged songs instead of lengthy epics. Um, and that's that's more of the entire album, Hot Space, instead of just specifically bohe- uh, specifically under pressure. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I included any of this in my notes, but I did watch a BBC documentary about... Under pressure, and it seems like number one, nobody can agree on who came up with the dun 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 dun, and that's because John Deacon said that he came up with it, but he couldn't remember how to do it, and so mm-hmm. Brian May showed him how to do it, and then Bowie was like, "No, he remembered how to do it, but I showed him how to do it better." And like, there's something. I wish I had kept that in my notes, but basically. Nobody remembered what it was because they kind of sat down and were just kind of freestyling and they really liked it. Then they went out to lunch and no one wrote it down. And it just happened? It just happened. And so... Well, Deacon must have played it. So I'm going to give the credit to John Deacon. If I had to pick... If you had to pick one of those figures, I'm going to credit John. Yeah. Um, The other thing was, apparently, you put a lot of very talented very eccentric people into one room and you're going to have fights. Mm-hmm. 
And apparently that happened as well. I do believe that. So, you know, I didn't. I wish I, I was able to give a better backstory on it. But there is a link on YouTube. I think it's called How Under Pressure Happened or something. I'm sure if you look it up. But it's the thumbnail is Freddie Mercury and oh, David so you, Bowie. Do you have your phone so I can look up the best collaboration of all time? I'll yeah. look it up while you're talking. Because I think we, we need to know this. This this needs to happen. Uh, this one says, One Sweet Day with Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Yeah, okay. But does that really beat Under Pressure or Aerosmith and Run DMC? Or Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks, Stop Dragging My Heart Around? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I don't think it beats those. It is a great song, and it did. that was number one for like 17 weeks. Yeah, but I mean, Aerosmith and Run DMC is like, oh. One aspect that crit- critics are quick to point out and occasionally praise was the obvious desire to focus more on the rhythmically charged songs instead of lengthy epics. There weren't any bohemian rhapsodies or prophet songs. The drums and bass were brought up further in the mix, while the guitars were reduced to provide rhythm and an occasional solo, thus eliminating the framed orchestration that made Queen's music in the 1970s so appealing. Another new factor was the introduction of ugh, synthesizers. Mm which would upset a small percentage of their fans. Uh, my brother, TJ, is actually one of those people that, that I think really disliked that. Oh, he'll lose his mind if you talk about it. Yeah. The, the band themselves were unsure of the shift, but the music world was evolving. It would have been career suicide not to have evolved as well. Synthesizers were used liberally on several songs throughout the album, Play the Game, Rocket, Sail Away, Sweet Sister, Coming Soon, and Save Me. I'll feature the offending instrument. I love that. The offending instrument. Oh, but Save Me is a great song. Yeah, Save Me is a great song. Play the Game is also one of my favorites. That's a good one. I'm Literally, if you just name a Queen song, by Queen, I'm, yeah. I'm probably going to like it. Uh, also, more mundanely, fans were introduced to the startling image of Freddie with a bushy mustache. God forbid. While he had grown to self-consciously hide his protruding teeth. <laughs> That's the word. According to legend, during the North American tour in 1980, Freddie was bombarded with disposable razors and pleas from the audience to shave the offending facial hair. Oh, <sighs> I disagree. I don't know if it was a good look on him. but I, I think it worked. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I like my 77 Freddie the best. I don't know if the mustache was doing him any favors. 46 U.S. dates climax with Mercury firing champagne over the crowd during a three-night residency at New York's Madison Square Garden. <laughs> By comparison, it was inevitable that same year Flash Gordon soundtrack seemed a little slight. <laughs> and uh, I actually talked about it before where the director was like, who's Queen? Wow. <laughs> the, the guy, Dino, did not know who Queen was. Amazing. <sighs> but uh, I think this was the same year that Freddie would come out on stage riding the shoulders of someone dressed like Darth Vader. <laughs> so it was a fun, weird time. Sure. We wanted to write the first rock and roll musical, Taylor told Blake of the latter. It was a very camp film, but I thought our music suited the film and its camp awfulness. <laughs> Good phrasing. While Another One Bites the Dust reached number one in the U.S., becoming Queen's definitive stateside hit, the lineup hadn't failed to notice that their rocking numbers in South America where the singles chart-topping performance in both Argentina and Guatemala gave Queen a claim to be the continent's biggest rock band. So, yeah, they're just killing South America. Wow. 
So like I was saying, Queen were approached by Italian film director Dino De Laurentiis, uh, slated to direct a film adaptation of the 1930s comic book hero Flash Gordon. The band were understandably skeptical about delving into the world of film music, but they were more receptive when they were given complete artistic freedom, as long as the music complemented the scene. Brian took particular interest in the project and worked closely with Mac on the production duties. For the first and only time on a Queen album ever, and as an individual, in this case, Brian, was credited as producer instead of Queen as a collective unit, huh. which was pointed out by John in a 1981 interview as being a very unusual thing for us all. We got into some trouble with it. Brian wanted to have a German producer with whom he worked very close with in Munich, while we would have preferred a album for Queen. We did agree then, but we're not very happy about it. So really, that just sounds like a mess. <laughs> well, I mean, it's our first chance to be... Taking over that project, like you said, the previous album, they worked without a producer, I think. Yeah. So they're stepping into more of a, like, they're getting a longer leash, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Demo sessions took place concurrently while recording sessions for the game in the beginning of 1980. It wouldn't be until a break in the band's touring schedule in October of 1980 that they'd be able to work on a project properly. Because of the short span of time, which was six weeks, they were often done separately and as individuals instead of as a band. So, like, Freddie would go in and lay out the vocal tracks, Brian would do the guitar tracks, and then so they were all working on it separately. Hmm. Which does feel like, if you do listen to Flash Gordon, it does seem a little... It has been a while, I'll Distant, admit. and it feels a little distant, and it feels a little bit vacant and a little bit separated. Hmm. Due to the physical separation, maybe? Yeah. To underscore the sci-fi feel of the film, the band used synthesizers more prominently than they had on the game, which, with nearly every track using it as their lead instrument. Because of this, sections of the album are a lot like David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy, which is Low, Heroes, and Lodger. And though those albums have gone on to become classics in the template for which Bowie's albums would be judged upon, Flash Gordon remains the black sheep in Queen's discography. That's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's like super camp <laughs> because you, you not only have like the Queen soundtrack, but you also have them overdubbing lines from the film within the music, which is just weird. It's also inherently campy, but the nature of the project. So, yeah, that was inevitable. Perhaps part of the band's mistake was issuing the soundtrack as a proper Queen album instead of a companion piece to the film. I totally agree with that. Mm hmm. Once in the annals of Queen discography, it's inevitable that the album is compared to previous albums, and because of the nature of the album, 18 pieces of music, barely over two minutes, and only two real songs, Flash's theme and the hero which book in the album, featuring any lead vocals from Freddie, as well as the reputation of a highly camp film, it wasn't able to stand a chance. <laughs> Critics are more ready to rip into the band while fans weren't sure what to make of it. Because of this, the album only reached only reached number 10 in the UK and a dismal 23 in the US. The first time since Queen 2 that a Queen album failed to reach the top 20. Considering this, the success of the game merely months prior, the relative failure of the album must have alarmed the band. I don't know if it alarmed the band. They then played two nights at the massive Marumbai Stadium in San Paolo. On the first night, 131,000 people attended. Oh, wow. And Queen created rock and roll history as it was the largest paying audience for a single band anywhere in the world. I wonder if that's been broken. I don't know. Well, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. During those two nights at the stadium, 200 
151,000 people saw the Queen spectacle. True. And that is the largest audience than most bands can expect in their whole career. Every single one of the Queen's albums was the top 10 in Argentina during their tour, a first for any band. That is insane. Every single one of Queen's yeah, albums. Was top 10. Every single one of their albums was in the top 10. Whilst they were in Sao Paulo, the band celebrated the fact that the single Love of My Life had been in the Sao Paulo charts for over 12 consecutive months. Jeez. And in April 1981, Roger released his first solo album titled Fun in Space and Queen were back in South America. This was a return trip being hailed as the Glutton for Punishment tour. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, their, their last two gigs in Caracas had to be canceled after the former Venezuelan president, Romildo Benacourt, died. So the band moved on to play in Mexico and Monterey and Puebla, just outside Mexico City. While they were there, the band's promoter, Jose Roda, was arrested and jailed. And Jim Beach had to pay over $25,000 to have him released so the tour could continue. Oh, Miami. Yeah. <laughs> we love Jim Beach. I, I really do like the character in the film. I don't know much about him outside of that. but Yeah, well, we watched Bird, Bird Box. Oh, yeah, he was in that, too. Yeah. He was in Bird Box. He was in a bunch of stuff. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's a good actor. Greatest Hits, Greatest Flicks, and Greatest Picks were released simultaneously in October of 1981. Greatest Hits, the album, entered the chart as soon as it was released and has rarely been out of the British charts since. I don't know when that was written, but it doesn't shock me. So it's always been up that high? It's just been on the charts. Wow. Greatest Flicks, the video, was the first real collection of promo videos released commercially by any band. And Greatest Picks, the books, was compiled by Jacques Lowe, who was was President Kennedy's personal biographer during his term in office. So it was Jock's personal selection of the greatest queen pictures of the previous decade. Also, honey. Yes. If you haven't realized, I just literally mentioned everything I'd like for my birthday. That was the entire list right there. (laughs) Good to know. Yeah. Tell your family. (laughs) Let them know. The band's 12th album, Hot Space, was released on May 21st, 1982, while the band was in the middle of an extensive European tour. They tour so much. They were doing a lot. Like, it seems like they would write, release, sorry, write, record, release, tour. And tour like crazy, and then yeah. tour like madmen. When did they even have time to write something? On June the 5th that year, they played the huge open-air Milton Keynes Bowl. Uh, so forgive me if I'm not saying that right. The whole show was filmed by the Tyne Teens Television under the direction of Gavin Taylor to be shown on Channel 4's The Tube program at a later date. In September 1982, the Japanese company Mercury Records, having absolutely nothing to do with Freddie, <laughs> just a, a coincidence, <laughs> released an album called Getting Smile. It was thought to be the first real bootleg, but after listening to the album, Brian and Roger declared it to be the real smile, although neither of them recalled having recorded so much with the band. It was their own band? They didn't recognize <laughs> it? That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm assuming there are a couple factors in not remembering that you recorded something. And then you played me Humpy Bong the other day. Remember that one? <laughs> I also played that for Tracy as well. Nice. She didn't like it as much as she liked Spooky Tooth. I don't need explanation on that one, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, in December 1982, Queen made it into the Guinness Book of World Records as Britain's highest paid executives. 
The band? The band. Interesting. Is, is in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the highest paid. Executives, but not even musicians. I don't know British lingo. <laughs> I had to ask. Well, I mean, I guess if they're being billed as producers, then it puts them on Possibly, that, yeah. Yeah, level. Yeah. Hot Space is full of mixed messages. The tracks are infused with disco and funk, not to men- mention Freddie's gender politics, which is inadvertently coinciding with the emergence of the 1970s thing that was happening. And it it's called the clone look. So in the 1970s, he was all flowing shirts, long hair, and painted nails, which in the context of glam rock, like the the, the emergence of like glam rock and, and arena rock, things like That's that. It sounds like. It wasn't that outrageous. In the 1980s, influenced by the gay leather scene in New York and Munich, his styles changed. He chopped off his hair, he grew a mustache, and was often photographed in New York in a mirror cap, which I think is like that, um, I think it's like that black hat with like the studs on it that you think of oh, when you think yeah, of like yeah, yeah. that yeah, that yeah. thing. Yeah, no, I can picture it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a mine shaft or heaven T shirt or vest. Which I didn't look any of that up, but I just assume that it, it's in that whole leather scene hmm. that you think of when you think about the nineteen eighties gay leather scene. Mm-hmm. So forgive me for my ignorance. I don't I don't know. Um, Freddie adopted the clone look, which was popular in the early 1980s in the underground gay scene. So the clone was kind of the manliest of all men. This was a guy that like looked like he was a bodybuilder, spent hours at the gym, had that like slicked down mustache or like a really tight beard. That that idea, you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking. That's kind of what the clone look was, yeah. and there was absolutely nothing that was like new age or hippie about it. So Freddie's really leaving behind that old look of the pleats and the sequins and the Harlequin look. And he's kind of going into that part of the 80s that was just made of leather. Mm. Got it. Okay. And one of the village people was Freddie's close friend. And he was the construction worker. Mm. And that's kind of what Freddie looked like at the time. So it was kind of a... A look he adopted from one of his really close friends. Okay. Who was in the village people. Because it was the 70s and 80s. So why not have friends that were in the village people? You might as well. In January of 1983, Freddie began work on a solo album and Roger began work on his second solo album. During the early part of the year, Brian had flown out to Los Angeles and gathered together a few close friends in the record plant studios that are actually here. Brian had some basic ideas to work on, but generally... uh, Generally... A lengthy jam session. However, Brian had no intention of wasting his talents. Oh, <laughs> wasting the talents of Edward Van Halen. Oh, jeez. Alan Gratzer, <clears throat> Phil Chen, and Freddie Mandel. And so tapes kept rolling throughout the whole session, and the result was the mini album Starfleet Project, which was released in October of 1983. Which is a Brian May album? Yeah, okay. sort of. It's like a one long jam session. Got it. Okay. So they went back into the studio in August of 1983 to work on their next album. Work commenced at the record plant in L.A. And it was the first time the band had recorded in America. After a number of months, recording switched from L.A. to Munich, a city that the band spent so much time in during their recording session, they actually almost thought of it as home. In February of 1984, the band released their 13th album, The Works. A favorite song on of literally of all time is on this album. What's my favorite song, honey? 
Uh, Radio Gaga. Yes. yes. Radio Gaga was taken from that album and will become a worldwide hit, reaching number one in 19 different countries. Directed by David Mallet, featured the fan club members again, and if you'll recall, audience, not Will, that they had been asked to join in on the music video for We Are The Champions. And the hand-clapping chorus became a favorite with live musical audiences all over the world. I can attest to that because <laughs> anytime I hear that song, doesn't matter where I'm at, I will do the clapping. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I embarrass Will some. I, I expect it at this point. Okay. What I didn't write in the script was that Roger wrote this song. It is one of my favorites. Like I said, I go between Love of My Life being my favorite and Radio Gaga being my favorite. Just ask me on like six different days and just get an average mean. The music video is really interesting because they took footage from the film Metropolis and incorporated it in. And if you'll see the flying car, there is a very particular reason why people are sitting where they're sitting. Because, in that car? Yes, because you have Roger driving, and he wrote it. You have Freddie singing it, so he's in the front seat with Roger doing the vocals. And then you have Brian and Deke in the back just chilling out because, again, they use synthesizers. That's funny. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is a really cool music video, and I think it still kind of stands up. It's very... 1984-ish. Hmm. If you remember the, the Macintosh commercial where they're all kind of brainwashed oh, and yeah. then she runs mm -hmm. in. It's yeah. kind of got that vibe to it. I don't think it has the same meaning to it. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great song, great music video, and it is something that people can, can take part in as well. So I like that. I like audience participation songs. <laughs> Queen is quite good at those. Yeah. Another single from the works was I Want to Break Free. And that had an even more outrageous video as all of the all the band members are dressed in drag. It's one of the more memorable videos, in my opinion. Yes. It featured the, the band dressed as characters from the popular British soap opera Coronation Street, which that part I didn't know. But Freddie didn't write it. Freddie didn't come up with the video idea. But because of who Freddie was, everybody kind of blamed him. Uh, it was actually banned on MTV. Yeah, I remember that part. When asked why, Roger said that he had become bored with serious epic videos, and he thought it was about time they had some fun and proved that they could still laugh at themselves. And MTV in America refused to show the video. Uptight. Mm -hmm. Seriously, but you'll From show... the British band, yeah. You'll show all the Madonna videos? No, they weren't to that point yet. Videos were still kind of new. Ugh. In June 1984, Roger released his second solo album, Strange Frontier. And also in June, a company called Guide Guitars launched a special copy of Brian's homemade red special guitar. We, we actually looked up how much it would cost to buy just like the baseline knockoff version of the red special. And I think we figured out it's about three to eight hundred dollars if okay. you want to get a really good copy. It can run to about a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand, something like that. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, that's a ton of money for, <laughs> for anything. In August, Queen flew out to Belgium to start the Works tour in that country. Is there a country that didn't love Queen? I don't think so. Okay, Queen's first full-length video was released in September of nineteen eighty-four, which came a lot later than I thought it would have, just considering because they would make. All the promo videos for them to do on the top of the pops. And they were kind of out front of the whole music video thing. 
We Will Rock You was filmed during the band's 1981 Montreal concert, which I own on DVD. <laughs> during September, Queen had no fewer than nine albums in the UK Top 200. Not bad. 1985 was the year Rock in Rio, as it was billed, was the biggest rock festival to be held anywhere, and Queen was headlining the event. The whole festival was recorded for broadcast throughout South America, but Queen was the only band to obtain the rights to release their performance on video. Live in Rio was released in May 1985. The band performed their first ever concert in New Zealand on April 13, 1985 in Auckland, Tom Hadley's singer with British band Spindo Ballet flew over from Australia where his band was on tour to see the Queen show and was honored to be asked by Queen to join them on stage for an encore. Hmm. So Freddie released his first solo album, Mr. Bad Guy, and that was released on April 19th while the band was on tour in Australia. Okay, so we talked about their songs. We talked about their videos. We've talked about the controversy. Do you know anything I'm missing? Songs, video, controversy... We're missing Jim Hutton. Oh, Jim comes in. Okay. Freddie Mercury's rock star set has held little clout with Jim Hutton. The first time the pair met, Hutton, born in Carlo, Ireland in 1949, was working as a hairdresser and failed to even recognize the singer. And we will talk about this more. Although the 2018 film Bohemian Rhapsody depicts their first encounter as a as consisting of flirtatious banter when Hutton comes to help clean up after one of Mercury's famous parties. In reality, the first two met at a London club in 1985, and it was far from instant attraction. Oh, wow. Jim was working as a hairdresser when he first met Freddie at a club called Heaven in 1985. Hutton was already seeing someone at the time and refused Mercury's offer to buy him a drink. It wasn't until fate brought them together again at the same spot 18 months later that the two really connected. They began dating, and soon after their second encounter, Hutton moved into Mercury's London home, Garden Lodge, not even a year later. Of course, dating a celebrity is not without its trials for Hutton, and he recalls how one day he had a huge fight after he saw Mercury leaving heaven with someone else, which the singer had claimed that he did just to make him jealous. <laughs> Things came to a head, however, after Hutton saw Mercury leaving his apartment with another man and told him that he had to make up his mind. Yeah, I can see how you could not get out of that kind of situation. Mm. Mercury actually responded to Hutton's ultimatum by just going, okay. <laughs> that settles it. <laughs> All right. Jim actually thinks that deep down inside, Mercury really wanted someone who was like down to earth and not impressed with who he was. And I think that's kind of what Freddie always wanted was for someone to reciprocate his love for them because they loved him, not 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 because they loved Queen, because they loved Freddie. Hmm. Once together, the couple's home life was in fact much more mundane than might be expected by the flamboyant star's legion of fans. On stage, Mercury was the ultimate showman who could electrify crowds. At home, Hutton reminisced, I'd get in from work, we'd lie on the sofa together, he would massage my feet and ask me about my day. <laughs> what started with a drink at a nightclub would turn into a relationship that would last until the end of Mercury's life. I'm sorry. That's it's okay. Although it remained a secret to the last, Mercury never publicly came out, nor ever even told his family about his homosexuality. Jim Hutton was both unbothered by this, explaining... He might have worried about how coming out would have affected him professionally, but he didn't say that. We both thought our relationship and being gay was our business. Although gay marriage was nearly two decades away from being legalized in the UK, 
Both men wore wedding rings as a symbol of their commitment. Yeah, they were committed to each other. I'm sorry. That's okay. You know I love love. I know you do. Now I get to talk about something that I probably won't cry about. (laughs) And it is, it's that moment that everyone has a moment in music that they can point to and go, I wish I was there for that. And this is that moment for me. Because this is the greatest 20 minutes in music history. It's Live Aid. July 13th, 1985 was a day that went down in history as the day the Live Aid concert took the world by storm in London's vast Wembley Stadium and from Philadelphia in the USA. (laughs) Queen was just one of a multitude of bands who all performed a short 20-minute set. The world was watching and Queen was unanimously voted by press and public alike as the band that stole the show. That event was a turning point for Queen. When Queen performed Live Aid, they gave the show of a lifetime. Often called Queen's best live show, the 20-minute performance changed music forever. In 1985, Bob Geldof and Midge Urie organized Live Aid, the Live Aid concert in mere weeks, securing musical artists from all around the world to raise funds for famine relief in Ethiopia. They described Live Aid as a global jukebox and held dual concerts at Wembley in London and JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, welcoming a total of, like, in, in the actual audience, 170,000 guests. Can you even imagine 170,000 people? Well, Queen had, what, 250,000 at that one show they did yeah, in I South know. America? But still, this was a lot. Queen were among more than 75 acts that performed, and they rocked the stage at Wembley Stadium, mastering their set in a way that marveled fans and fellow performers alike. Queen's performance brought together some of the band's greatest hits and had an energy only like the front man Freddie Mercury could provide. The story of Queen at Live Aid is a tale of pure talent and musical brilliance. Bands like U2 wanted to perform at a time that could optimize their exposure to the American audiences as well as their UK audience. Queen aimed for an opportune time slot for that same reason, but also considered the audiences who were watching from around the world. This was a global event, and I think they mentioned it in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, that they'll have something like 14 satellites to beam it all over the world, where the Olympics had three. Oh yeah, it was crazy how much exposure this thing got. Oh my god, yeah. The band performed at 6pm, prime time in the UK, and it was an uh, an ideal time since viewers could still tune in without feeling burnt out by the 16-hour concert, which featured every big rock band since the 70s. I don't know if I have a lineup of who all was involved. Okay, so I'm just going to read off some of the some of the people that were there, which were the Boomtown Rats, Adam Ant, In Excess, Spendo Ballet, Ozzy Osbourne, Billy Ocean, Sade, Sting, Phil Collins, Ario Speedwagons, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Judas Priest, Brian Adams, U2, Dire Straits, George Thorogood. Simple Minds, David Bowie, The Pretenders, The Who, Santana, Elton John, Ashford and Simpson with Teddy Pendergrass, Elton John and Kiki D, and Wham, Madonna, uh, Mercury and May, which they did another, like, micro-concert, and you can find that online as well. And then from Philadelphia, they had Tom Petty, Kenny Loggins, The Car... Oh, The Cars... Neil Young, Power Station, Thompson Twins, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, 
Plant, Paige and Jones, Duran Duran, Patti LaBelle, Holland Oates, Mick Jagger, and Tina Turner, Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, Ron Wood. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of stars. That is a lineup, yeah. Again, if I had if I could go back in the time machine, that would be the second day I would go to. Yeah, and the first one would be Kennedy's assassination. <laughs> I know. You know me so well. This is why our marriage works. This <laughs> because you know where I would time travel to. <laughs> the performers had okay, more than a billion people across the globe watched the show, but the UK and the US comprised the main audience. So billion. B billion. That that's so much. That is so so many people that saw this concert. Performers had no input on the lights, set, and other visual element elements for their performance, but this was no problem for Queen. Lead guitarist Brian May commented uh, that the lack of control over the stage gave the band the opportunity to show that it's the music first and foremost. That's kind of badass. Yeah, I can picture him saying that, too. Yeah. Groups like U2 only played two songs, while others like Brian Adams, David Bowie, and The Cars played four or five. And remember, everybody was given the same amount of time. So it was 20 minutes and an introduction, and that's all you got. Queen actually wanted to maximize their time and showcase their old tunes with new songs. That ended up with a set list that melodically combined six of their best-known hits, including an abridged Bohemian Rhapsody, Radio Gaga, AO, and you know what AO is, right? Mm-hmm. AO. And Hammer to Fall, Ayo. right? Hammer to Fall, crazy little thing called Love, We Will Rock You, and We Are the Champions. Not only did Queen create a set list that encouraged thousands of spectators to sing along, but their song choices include hits from throughout their decades, effectively creating a sense of nostalgia among their fans. They placed Hammer to Fall and Radio Gaga from the works right in the middle of their set between their two biggest and best-known songs. The band practiced their transitions between songs until the whole collection became a seamless medley, which they wanted people to identify and enjoy. The band experienced the height of their popularity in the 1970s, and by 82, they were still ranked in the top five and went platinum in the UK with the works. However, their performance at Live Aid revitalized their appeal just in time for the release of A Kind of Magic, which we are going to talk mm -hmm. about next episode. This is where we burn down the palace. Many performers felt overwhelmed by the Live Aid stage given the size of the audience, but Freddie Mercury was in his element, and it showed. Princess Diana and Prince Charles opened the Live Aid show at Wembley to a crowd of about 72,000 spectators. Simultaneously, there are more than 100,000 onlookers in the JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. London fans added a 40-second interlude to the Queen set when they sang along to Radio Gaga and kept it going with a Mercury-led call and response. You know, speaking of that call and response, mm -hmm. one of my favorite videos, if I'm feeling down, is that mouse video. The marmot. The mar I think it's a mouse, isn't it? I had some kind of rodent-type creature. I think it's a mouse, like a tit mouse or something. Prairie dog. I don't know. I don't Could know. It's cute though. Mm -hmm. Someone edited his call and response via a mouse, and it is hilarious. So I think if you look up Freddie Mercury AO on YouTube, you can probably find it. But it's it's gold. It'll make your day. It makes my day. I'll post it on Facebook. Freddie Mercury demonstrated his own ability to dominate a live stage by transitioning vocals, piano, guitar, and crowd work without missing a beat. 
He opened Bohemian Rhapsody on the piano while simultaneously singing with a raw emotion and pure talent. He shifted swiftly to showman and lead singer during Radio Gaga, running back and forth across the stage, and then he picked up a guitar for Crazy Little Thing Called Love, returning to the piano for We Are the Champions, closing the set as deftly as he opened it. (laughs) So later on, Mercury and May went back to the stage and performed a song from the works, Is This the World We've Created? Now, Queen were sandwiched in between U2, David Bowie, The Who, Elton John, a U2, a relatively young band in the mix, skyrocketed to fame with the 1983 release of War. At Live Aid, they had made history with a 12-minute version of Bad. During the performance, Bono got down in the crowd and danced with a fan. <laughs> so if you had asked who was the standout performance of the day up until U2, people would have said, oh, it was U2. Yeah, most people would say that. Yeah. And then Queen came on. (laughs) (laughs) And it changed everything. Yeah. And if you watch Bohemian Rhapsody, you'll notice in the opening and just before they go back to the Live Aid uh, scene, you can actually see someone portraying Bono walking down the staircase. Mm -hmm. So good on them for being accurate in some respects. But Queen followed the up-and-comers with a set list and electric performance that lasted 20 all-too-brief minutes. Years later, Brian May recalled of the performance saying, that was entirely down to Freddie. The rest of us played okay, but Freddie was out there and took it to another level. U2 lead singer Bono had a memorable encounter with Freddie backstage. According to Bono, Freddie pulled me aside and said, oh, Bono, is it Bono or Bon-O? I told him it's Bon-O. I was up against the wall and he put his hand on the wall and he was talking to me like he was chatting up a chick. And I thought, wow, this guy's really camp. Though Queen were under pressure to revitalize their image and live up to the bands before and after them, Freddie was more than prepared and confident in his ability to blow the audience away. May recalled that night for The Guardian describing his anxieties compared to Freddie's. I remember a huge rush of adrenaline as I walked on stage and a massive roar from the crowd, and then all of us just pitching in. Looking back, I think we're all a little bit overexcited, and I remember coming off and thinking it was very scrappy, but there was a lot of very good energy, too. Freddie was our secret weapon. He was able to reach out to everyone in that stadium effortlessly, and I think it really was his night. As for the fashion, because everybody knows I like fashion, (laughs) Freddie Mercury wore a simple pair of faded jeans, a white tank, his favorite pair of shoes, a belt, and an amulet. And uh, an armband, too. I'm wondering if that's the amulet they're talking about, because he did have something around his neck, but he also had the armband. Before he went out, he threw back a drink and said, let's do it. (laughs) Mercury's partner, Jim Hutton, says he had wished Mercury good luck, but knew he didn't need it. And uh, before I get to this last part, I will say there is the scene in the movie where you can see it's supposed to be Miami Beach. Take the piece of tape off the soundboard and turn it all the way up. Mm -hmm. That's a true story, but it wasn't actually Jim Beach. It was one of their techs. Hmm. That had gone on, and so he was like, and just did it. <laughs> they just gave it to Miami in the movie? Yeah, they because he was an established character already mm. in the film, and it would have meant more for him to do it than just some random guy to do it. So being that established character, it went to him. We'll be talking about that in our short set. Live Aid raised more than $125 million for famine relief in Ethiopia. Queen received so much attention 
and such a resurgence in popularity that they parlayed it into a world tour. (laughs) Their 1986 stadium tour had 26 dates, including two shows at London's Wembley Stadium, which featured an enormous elaborate set that weighed more than 9.5 tons. Okay. That is where we're going to leave you guys for this episode. Thank you for putting up with the Frankenstein that was this episode between Tracy being here, Tracy not being here, me being alone, uh, Mr. Hickey stepping in for me to to have a sounding board. (laughs) Thank you, honey. You're welcome, hon. (laughs) I'm just glad I always have someone that can step in and, and make me feel like I'm not crazy. But So we're leaving you at 1985. We will pick up next episode where we're actually going to take you through the rest of Freddie's life and that will end the month of Mercury I am sad to see it go it's been I've, I love this I could literally I could probably yeah. start a podcast just about Queen yeah probably I should start a podcast just about Queen <laughs> anyway thank you guys so much for checking out this episode check out next week's episode if you think we're doing an awesome job here and you feel in fancy, you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can check out our Facebook page at rock and roll heaven pod. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. I'm still not saying our website. You can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And since Tracy's not here, so we can't do our normal goodbyes. And I have full control of the end of the podcast. I am going to play you guys the entire Queen Live Aid set as our goodbye song. You're welcome. Bye, guys.
Tero. Tero. All right. Oh, oh, oh. 
This next song is only dedicated to beautiful people here tonight. It means all of you. Thank you for coming along and making this a great occasion.
brought me fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. I thank you all. But it's been a bed of roses. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.